difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on the recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Tasha Robinson. And... Genevieve Kosky. And Keith Phipps, who's normally with us, is on vacation this week. He'll be back next time. After talking about Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, today we're bringing in Midnight Special, the new sci-fi drama from Jeff Nichols, director of Shotgun Stories, Take Shelter, and Mud. Both movies essentially follow the same structure... Various groups of people, in this case a family, a religious cult, and government officials, follow the same set of coordinates to an alien encounter. But the way they get there and the tone both movies set are markedly different. Uh, Midnight Special concerns an eight-year-old boy with special powers who is a lot like the alien in Spielberg's E.T. He's very vulnerable to the Earth's environment, particularly sunlight. Michael Shannon plays the boy's father, who along with a friend, played by Joel Edgerton, keeps him away from religious cult and government agents, all of whom are pursuing him towards some larger destiny. What do you know about Alton Meyer? I wouldn't know where to start. You would have fits. Things would break. It was like a feeling. Kind of feeling. We need to know where he is. You all have no clue what you're dealing with, do you? Thinks you're their safe. Dad, it's okay. I have to admit, Genevieve and Tasha, I'm not even sure I explained the plot very well <laughs> just now. Uh, can, can, can one of you please clear it up for me? And, and once you do, uh, what do you make of the film Midnight Special? Well, I don't think you're necessarily supposed to have a super clear idea of what is happening in this movie. Like mm-hmm. there have been interviews with Jeff Nichols where he's like, it's more about the emotions you feel than what how the story ends. And I think it's particularly talking about the end of this movie that holds true because what happens at the end is, for me anyway, was very emotionally moving, but was also kind of like, okay, <laughs> I guess that makes sense within the what you've established so far in the film. But it's a low-key intensity. I think it was... I can't remember the review. I read this phrase in, so I apologize if I am plagiarizing someone. But spare urgency, which Mm. I think applies really well to how this story is framed, because you always do feel that sense of urgency, but you're not entirely sure of everything that is going into that sense of urgency. And I think that can maybe make it a little harder to connect to at certain points. There is a, a stretch in the back third of this movie where it was definitely feeling a little draggy to me and I've, I've seen pieces written about how the payoff at the end doesn't work it does work for me mm-hmm. i think that's a your mileage may vary type of situation yeah. 
but yeah, that's where I see. I think it does emotionally more than in terms of effects. You know, I don't think he maybe has a strong handle or a budget, I guess, to pull off uh, the effects in the same way uh, that Spielberg does in Close Encounters. But I, I think what you mean about the tone of the film, I think it's maybe has explained by the fact that they are all hurtling toward a question mark, mm-hmm. and and that Nichols' strategy, unlike. Spielberg's is to hide a lot of information from the audience, you know, and and again, and the tone is just so much more somber. And I think if you're not into the film, uh, sodden, um, I'm not Mm -hmm. saying I was not into it that much, but I think maybe I have some more reservations than the two of you. I'm curious actually to hear what Tasha has to say. I've got a lot of reservations about this film. And I think in the end, it comes down to expectations. Um, After Shotgun Stories and Mud and Take Shelter, I have such high expectations for Jeff Nichols and and what he does, particularly with character and, and the tension between characters. Mud, in particular, is a film that just blew me away with the the subtlety and the complications of the emotions going on, um, particularly between Ty Sheridan as a young boy who has met a stranger that he admires, and Matthew McConaughey as that stranger who does not particularly realize or even necessarily care like what kind of effect he's had on this younger boy who is clearly learning how to model masculinity on uh, on this character that he's met. The two of them have such like densely woven and interesting ties. It's such an interesting coming of age story and yet so little of it is explained. It's just it's very clear in the character dynamic. And you you get some of that with uh, Michael Shannon and his relationship with the characters of his brothers in Shotgun Stories. You get more of that with Michael Shannon and his family in Take Shelter in a story that's very much like some of the family dynamics in Close Encounters. And then you get to Midnight Special and you've got what should be like a really tense and complicated family dynamic. And it just kind of comes across as, eh, yeah, we're on the run together. There's so much under the surface there that I feel like he could have done something really interesting with if he was interested in it. And instead, he seems to be working with somebody else's voice. I mean, he initially said that this film was inspired by Close Encounters and Starman and E.T., what he called the chase films of the 80s, even the Close Encounters of 79. Mm-hmm. But And it, it feels like he's mimicking that at the expense of his own voice to me. Oh, but the film has so much in common with Take Shelter, though. And I mean, I guess that's something I'll get into a little bit later with my my topic. But the mission in both films is so similar. And you know, follow, following somebody who is on uh, a quest that or has an has the, the this idea of something that's going to happen that's so completely crazy seeming and irrational, but actually does uh, make sense uh, eventually. Because if you recall, I guess in uh, you know, it's the same guy. It's to Michael Shannon mm-hmm. in both both movies. So, so I mean, there is a connection um, be- between those films that that really made made this feel like a Jeff Nichols film. But one thing that that is sacrificed in terms of character is that you know is the concept of the film and, and its strategy of hiding information really doesn't allow for the type uh, the, the type of character development and clarity that maybe we might expect or want from a movie like this i mean that's something we'll get into in my topic for me the stuff that he does well here is are things that he in many cases did better in take shelter and the stuff that he didn't do in take shelter that he does here is stuff that's familiar from those as he calls them 80s chase movies Mm -hmm. 
It's not that I didn't like the film. I think that there's a lot to like in it. I, I particularly like the way it unfolds. The, it, there's a series of surprises. It's very moody. It's very evocative. It's very beautifully shot. Uh, I think the acting is, is pretty terrific. For me, it's just kind of the material is lacking. Did either of you happen to read the piece on BuzzFeed? Uh, it's a kind of an interview slash profile with Nichols. It's called "Behind." This is such a BuzzFeed headline: "Behind the Astonishing Midnight Special Ending." Hmm. I would I would highly recommend this article. It gave me a lot of clarity into what uh, Nichols was a- attempting to do here. And while we're talking about inspiration and you know eighties chase movies, there's another inspiration for him that really kind of made that ending a lot more special to me. And he's talking about the birth of his son five years ago and the experience of listening to this infant on a baby monitor. And he says, I sat there listening to everything, every breath, every moment, every sound. And I realized that at that point in his life, here was this person who had no concept that just outside the space of his consciousness, there were these two people who cared so deeply for him and were listening to everything he does. We knew everything about every moment. I was struck by that. And that became the basis for this bigger multiverse idea. So in that context, that ending just Mm -hmm. and what this force is that is drawing Alton to it and that we see in this sort of spectacular moment, I'll call it, I'll give it to him. It's, It's a spectacle, not on the level of Close Encounters. But so in that context, knowing what that is and this idea of like, you know, these people that are always watching us, that makes it special. And it does feel benevolent in the way that Close Encounters does not. I would also call out, there was an article on io9 recently, headlined in a much less BuzzFeedy way. <laughs> the director of Midnight Special wishes you'd stop calling it a Spielberg homage, <laughs> which I find fascinating because... <laughs> Listen to our podcast, Jeff <laughs> Well, okay. First of all, he said in umpty jillion interviews, uh, especially before the film came out, that he was inspired by Close Encounters, E.T. and Starman. Um, but I think think that he got so many people then comparing him to Spielberg in a negative way, he kind of dialed it back. And he said, you know, I was never, I was never going for Spielberg's scope. And he talks about, again, where he got the idea for the movie. But the narrative that he spins in that piece is very different from the narrative that you've just described. And he describes himself as having this almost instinctive mental image of two men driving a car urgently late at night. And asking himself the question, where are they going? Why are they trying to get there? And then putting a child in the car and seeing like, all right, now how does that change the story? I think the strongest parts of this movie to me are the stuff about parents and children. Mm -hmm. And um, we, you didn't mention it, but Kristen Dunst shows up about halfway through as Alton's mother. Mm -hmm. And she's very good in this as well, too. And, And I think she carries a lot of the emotional weight of that scene at the end. Yeah, I, I I completely am with you that the the film really did get me, um, and you know maybe it's a personal thing because I'm I, I'm a parent as well. I wanted to go. We keep citing sources. I get one on my own, which is which is uh, Ao Scott. Clearly, clearly, none of us un- no, quite I, understood this I, movie. I, and we did like, a lot I, of research. I, exactly. I really like was like, please clarify this thing for me. Which is, which is another thing about this movie. Like, how in the world did did he get? Warner Brothers to bankroll probably it. by comparing it to Close Encounters, <laughs> ET, like, but like when, he, when asked about like what is this thing about, Jeff Nichols, like, well, how do you describe it? And uh, I mean, an eighties chase movie sounds pretty good. True, but, but, an eighties chase movie like the blockbusters that made insane amounts of yeah. money for the, Steven Spielberg. The details of the plot, maybe not so much. In any case, this is a passage from uh, this is a, this is like a less grabby headline. 
and Midnight Special on the run with a highly unusual child. <laughs> BuzzFeed would punch that thing no, out. They would punch it up big time. Um, the amazing story behind <laughs> behind Midnight Special. Number six will make child. you cry. <laughs> okay, this is what BuzzFeed he, does some good film. I know. They really do. They have Allison Wilmore, yeah. who is part of the film spotting family. Yeah. Uh, and she's great. No shade. Uh, so, no shade. Agreed. So let's, uh, they do a lot of great work. Um, in any case, here, here's A.L. Scott on Midnight Special uh, talking about what I really like about it the most. At its heart, Midnight Special is a parable of parental love, a heartfelt look at the challenges involved in loving and possibly losing an extraordinary child. Quote, I like worrying about you, Roy says to Alton. Roy being, I believe, is Roy. They're both Roy's. Two Roy's. Yes, they are both yeah. Roy's. Oh my gosh. Uh, uh, Roy uh, Roy says to Alton at an especially grave and touching moment, and his words are a beautiful and concise summary of a common emotion. The context in which they occur is completely outlandish, and the charm and audacity of this film lie in the way it blends the commonplace and the bizarre. Dad? Yeah. Are you scared? You don't have to worry about me. I like worrying about you. You don't have to anymore. I'll always worry about you. Um, That's the deal. Here's my thing about Midnight Special. One of the movie's biggest frustrations for me was a feeling that that the relationship between Roy and Alden was defined too much by the goal of get this child to this place at this time and not enough like organically by what goes on between them. You see a lot of Roy like barking orders at Alden, like, you know, take off the headphones, get back into the van, don't leave the van, get your head down, don't go out there. And you get the sense certainly that he fears for his son. There is a real emotional connection there. He cares about him. But at the same time, there's so much baggage going on based on the strange things Alton can do. He's clearly got to be alienated him from him in some way. And I wanted that drawn out more. I wanted to actually get some idea, possibly from Roy talking to an adult about what the heck is going on with the two of them or in this movie in general. I wanted to understand better what Roy's emotions were. And because of the way Michael Shannon plays him and because the material is so spare, I feel like there's just there's a certain amount of Jeff, Jeff Nichols level like emotional complication that just never comes to the surface here. See, I, I think they do address that because one of Alton's powers abilities is you know to basically stare into someone's soul and enlighten them about something. It's mm-hmm. it's, it's very nebulous, but it is kind of established that when he does his little juju on you you understand yeah. there, there is an understanding there and it's not expressed what that understanding is but i think it is safe to assume that roy has seen into or been seen by alton in this manner and is therefore there for whatever is whatever needs to happen for out in the same way his mother is in the same way Joel Edgerton's character is. And by the way, I really liked that character. Oh yeah. And I like Joel. It was the first time I ever was like, I really like Joel Edgerton. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so that was a fun surprise, but yeah. So as far as that, whatever Roy's 
emotional connection to this, what he has to do is. I don't think it was ever expressed in specific words, but I think we are told that he had an experience that is giving him that connection. But he already has the connection of that's his son. What I wanted to understand better because like, I don't like, I don't need for somebody to explain their emotions to me in a movie. I don't ever want a movie to hold my hand and explain to me what I should think or what I should feel. But at the same time, there's just such a density of complication going on here with this is my son. And this is also this ineffable creature that I cannot understand that has these strange powers. And I wanted a, a clearer sense than I got of where where Roy falls in between those two extremes and what it's doing to him. I don't think Jeff Nichols wants to give you that clarity. <laughs> there are a lot of things that Jeff, Jeff Nichols yeah. does. Clarity not is give not you. really the film's strong suit. Yeah. Um, so let's get into the topics. Uh, Genevieve, what do you got for us? I want to talk about children in both of these films, which kind of uh, relates to what we were just talking about. Children, and by extension, child actors, are central to the narrative and themes of both of these films. We talked a lot about Barry's abduction and it being a very memorable Close Encounters moment and his disappearance bringing Jillian into Roy's orbit as the pair travel to Devil's Rock. But more significantly, Barry is a symbol of the sort of awe and unhampered curiosity that informs much of the film's thematic content. The way Barry chases after the UFOs without fear and with apparent childhood delight is a sort of more innocent version of what Roy goes through. And it's also a symbol for the sense of boundless curiosity and wonder that informs space exploration and a desire for alien contact. Alton Meyer in Midnight Special serves a similar narrative function in as much as he is a catalyst for their journey in the same way Barry is a catalyst for Jillian's journey, and the urge his parents feel to protect him echoes Jillian's plight in Close Encounters. But his thematic significance is much less straightforward. Alton is not a normal child in the way Barry is. He's something alien and unknown. Even he doesn't know what he is for most of the film. But one of the strongest associations with childhood is potential. The children are our future and all that. Alton represents an unknown, something his parents can never fully predict or understand for him. And in that small way, he's like all children. There are certainly other ways to read Alton and Barry, for that matter. But I'm curious what you two think of these two child characters and the actors who play them. Well, well let me get into Alton first, which is, I think, the one aspect that really stood out um, about him to me is vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, because he is you know, really quite literally unable to handle the earth as, as it is. I mean, he, there are, there are things that he can't do. He's weakened throughout, or at least to a certain point in the film. He's he's very weak, you know, and and as a parent, I mean, there's nothing that makes you feel for a child more than just the fact that they need you and uh, that they're vulnerable and that, um, and uh, you're there to, to protect them and to, to, to bring them along on their way. So um, in, in a way though, I was thinking, the film is almost, uh, with regard to childhood, kind of a compression, really a really intense compression of the whole of childhood mm-hmm. in just a very small amount of time. Yeah. Because you do start with this with this childlike or like infant like vulnerability where where the kid gets under anything. a blanket. But then, but then you know you get the you almost get right right up to to, to high school graduation mm-hmm. at the end where where it's time to say goodbye. Uh, even though the kid is still a, as a very small kid, there's a there's another destination and you, you have to let go. Um, and uh, the fact that his childhood as far as these parents are concerned is so short is really a, a big part of what intensifies the emotion of the film. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me that you keyed on his vulnerability because I keyed on his 
his uncanny adulthood. You know, there's there's such a long tradition in cinema in particular of uncanny children, mm-hmm. disturbing, disturbingly adult children. And, and children I, with glowing eyes. <laughs> children with glowing eyes, children with strange powers, but, um, but mostly just children who stare like blankly, blankly at you and don't smile. I think one of the things that's interesting about Close Encounters is as distressing as it can be to watch Roy's children smash toys or weep hysterically at the first sight of their father doing something weird. Those children feel like children. Alton very deliberately does not feel like a child mm-hmm. from the beginning when he's being snatched up, crammed in a car and driven at great speeds through the dark. And he's completely chill about it. That's one of the first keys in the movie that something is very wrong is that he's so very calm and collected about the whole thing. And as the film goes on, he takes charge of his own rescue e- effort. He comes to know more than the adults around him about what's going on. And he, he quite literally becomes their boss. And it becomes increasingly freaky, but also increasingly relaxing because you finally get the sense that somebody's in control. Yeah, we haven't even mentioned Adam Driver as uh, who's yeah. <laughs> very who really kind of brings whatever humor is in the film kind of comes from that a bit. But uh, that scene, as you say, when the, when Alton takes control um, and uh, and you have that that session between between the two of them, I mean, yeah, that definitely he's not 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 so vulnerable anymore. He's in charge even before that with him and Roy in the hotel room where he decides he's going to go out and face the light. Like that, that for me was kind of the turning point where he decides, all right, I know more about what I need than you do. Well, to go back to Scott's analogy, which I'm really glad you verbalized because it's something that's kind of like clanking around in my brain and I couldn't quite hone in on it. But the idea of it being a very uh, condensed version of childhood, like Mm -hmm. that moment in the motel room where he says, I know what I am now. And it's like, that is adulthood. That is, (laughs) that, that is what it is. Like, I am no longer yours to protect i am my own person at least it's the first stirrings of adulthood yeah that's puberty (laughs) yeah when you go when you go off to college you definitely think uh yeah Yeah. i know who i am and i know who i want to be and oh boy he figures it out what about barry what do you guys we talked a lot about barry but like what do you guys think of him He's really quite cute. Yeah, he, he is. is. I was going to say cute. It could, it could, he could be so annoying, but he's just not. I don't, no, he just looks around. Yeah. He's cute. Uh, the actor, the kid actor's name is uh, Carrie, and they apparently called him One Take Carrie because he, he was he was so perfect uh supposedly kubrick wanted him for the shining mm-hmm. because he was so like a good so efficient like worked so well as an actor boy you gotta imagine that these films save a lot of time if they don't have to like cajole and chivy their kids through five thousand takes in order to get the one kubrick would have done it anyway he would, he would have <laughs> broken that kid oh god you're so right that would have been his uh, uh quick uh transition into adulthood <laughs> yeah. so sasha you you wanted to talk about good mysteries and bad mysteries yes i do want to talk about good mysteries and bad mysteries both of these films create an inordinate amount of questions both of these films you while you're watching them you're perhaps conscious of a lot of things that are not being addressed and then once the film is over you're even more conscious of a lot of things that haven't been addressed in close encounters you you got to ask yourself why why Roy why did they pick him why did they instill this idea of Devil's Tower in him why his fellow twelve people who were apparently invited to come on the ship what is singular about him do they have any understanding of what they've done to his mind and his family do they care what do they want him for 
why did they take all of those people? Why did they dump a ship in the middle of the desert? Why do they give them back? Why do they come when they do? What do they want? This podcast is going to be two hours long. <laughs> this, reminds me, this reminds me of, of uh, Pee Wee Herman trying to find his bike. In, in, uh, in, 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 I will tell you right now that the, question, the answers to these questions are not in the basement of the Alamo. Okay. But they're even, not in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. <laughs> Fair enough. Maybe they're in Take Shelter and I just didn't watch it closely enough. But there are also all of these questions that uh, to me are like all of those questions are questions that Spielberg intends that he wants you to ask and he wants you to ponder and not have answers for. But then there are questions like why is a French guy in charge of what appears to be America's response to the aliens? There are just there are questions that I find frustrating rather than helpful. And Midnight Special has a lot of unanswered questions in both camps as well. For me, one of the big unanswered but good questions is how did Altum come about in the first place? You know, why was this special child born? Why did he need to get back to this place? Who are the other people? Like, what what do they mean? What does this moment of connection mean? All of that is left as a good mystery for you in the same way that, for instance, Take Shelter ends with a very, very mysterious shot that I have read many really interesting explanations for from people that interpret it very differently. But there are a lot of what I see as bad mysteries in Midnight Special, and they mostly have to stem from pieces of the backstory that don't seem to fit together. Why did Roy give his son up to the leader of a cult who was apparently allowed to adopt him? Where was his mother who seemed to just kind of abandon them as near as we can tell? What exactly is Alton showing people and and how did a cult come to form around him? I begin to think as I think about these two movies that the difference between a good mystery and a bad mystery in a film is different for everybody. But for me, at least, it comes down to, does it open up the world and make it more interesting? Or does it distract you by presenting a a logical inconsistency that's difficult to get around? I don't think there's a logical inconsistency to the things that the aliens do in Close Encounters. They're aliens. It's part of what makes them alien. But there is a logical inconsistency to having Francois Truffaut... (laughs) (laughs) running this organization and you can explain it by saying oh it's an international scientific uh, exploration except there don't seem to be any other international people there for me it becomes a distraction and all of the unanswered questions about how we got to where we are at the beginning of midnight special becomes a bad mystery because i find them very distracting it's it's hard to understand how what we see at the beginning of the movie makes sense given what we come to understand about the characters that's a key thing for me. The difference for me, my experience with Close Encounters and with Midnight Special is the difference between productive and unproductive confusion. You know, I mean, it's, 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 you want to be intrigued by a film and, and, want to ha- it's, and it's okay to have these open questions as, as both of them do. But I found myself kind of off the line in Midnight Special in a way that I never was and never am with Spielberg period but but I did not feel like uh, Midnight Special was a particularly sure-handed piece of storytelling and it just it just kept I just I felt distance from it. it particularly in the first half just trying to get my bearings it was not a productive process it was frustrating and I, and I and I tried it again I I went and saw it last night and had the same experience because I, I went to try to clear up um, some confusion and see if maybe I was you know tired or something and I still felt really distance from it. I think there's a distinction to be made between 
mysteries, quote unquote, that are part of the background and mysteries are presented as questions to be answered. Mm. Like the whole thing about how a cult sprang up around Alton, that doesn't bother me. Like that, that is part of the backstory. That is a whole other movie. I don't really need to know the answers to that to be in the story that is happening. There are questions that are raised by the narrative we see that aren't answered satisfactorily. And that I think is what you are calling a bad mystery. One thing that kind of bothered me about midnight special is there's a scene in the beginning um, at the ranch where um, Sam Shepard's character is like, we didn't issue that Amber alert. Right. And they're like, no. So it's like, so who issued that Amber alert? Was it the government? Like, like what, what set off this chase to begin with? Like that is a question that is opened and never satisfactorily closed unless I missed something. But you know, and it becomes pretty key to the action. I mean, yeah. whoever set that off, it sets off the whole story. And then when you have a character saying, boy, this is sure a mystery. I wonder how it happened. Yeah. That just highlights it. Yeah. So to me, anyway, that is kind of the difference between like a good mystery and a bad mystery is like a good mystery is part of the fabric of the story being told. It doesn't necessarily, you don't necessarily need to look at every single thread and pick apart every single thread, but like a bad mystery is like, like gaudy embellishment on top of the fa- that fabric that doesn't, that distracts, yeah. you know? Yeah. I, I guess I tend to I'm sort of picking up on something you were, you said, Scott, it it becomes a question of sure-handedness. I mm-hmm. feel like on some level, Spielberg knows the answers to those questions. Jeff Nichols apparently does. He's made it clear in a lot of interviews that he feels in editing that he hamstrung this movie a bit, that he had more information and that he, he decided it wasn't necessary and pared it away. And supposedly he does have answers to all of these questions. But I just don't feel it watching the film. No, I... I was not as engaged period as I should have been. (laughs) Um, And I, yeah, I really didn't um, get much out of the religious cult angle of the film at all. Did you, did you all the, Um, all the stuff in the ranch? Cause it's, it's abandoned for a, for long stretches of time. We, we, we don't really see what's, what's going on. Yeah. I think to me, the whole cult thing suggested without getting too deep into it, a sort of formative trauma in this family involving this cult Mm -hmm. where they became involved and she the mother clearly disengaged at one point and probably a different point than the father and that was probably where the schism happened there and clearly something happened there that kind of the intersection of family drama and whatever this cult story is that's not a story that I need to see. Like I've seen all every season of Big Love, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I did think of Big Love. Yeah, even not a cult, whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, as a kind of informative background element, the cult stuff didn't bother me. Yeah. You know, once it kind of becomes clear how the cult is functioning in the present day of the story it became a little less interesting it was just like another another faction chasing them Mm -hmm. and it wasn't really obvious like what they want like like they they want to get to those coordinates too you know like like how does their mission ultimately differ from his parents mission other than that they want to keep alan around 
Yeah, and that's the problem for me with all of the unanswered mysteries around the cult is it really seems like, again, there is something significant and and important that Jeff Nichols has the opportunity to say there about religious belief, what drives it in this case, and what where it's going. And then he just completely seems to drop that that line. But Scott, I believe well, that plays exactly, into uh, what your topic is. Inadvertently, really, because I, my topic was faith, and I never really even thought about the religious cult in this film <laughs> when, when addressing it. Um, so, Go back and do your homework, and we'll, do, we'll right. do this topic think, later. But I'm, I'm going to say it's half Jeff Nichols' fault yeah. and half mine. Um, you know, faith plays a significant role in both films. Uh, you know, I've heard Close Encounters interpreted through, you know, sort of a Judeo-Christian lens. But to me, uh, its act of faith is more secular in nature, you know, some, akin to something like John Lennon's Imagine. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Spielberg is expressing uh, this faith, perhaps a naive faith that, that, that races with seemingly nothing in common and only the most rudimentary means of communication can have a peaceful exchange. Um, Midnight Special follows through on a premise similar to Nichols' Take Shelter. In both films, uh, Michael Shannon pr- pursues an occurrence uh, that any rational thinker would think impossible, and they're willing to sacrifice their lives to do it. Um, there's a madness in that, but in both cases, Nichols justifies their faith in the end. Uh, and in doing so, I think he validates faith itself as a worthy concept of, of embracing the unknowable and and getting you know a positive or at least a an affirmative result from that well sure i mean both films effectively end with a protagonist being assumed alive into heaven mm-hmm. by the ineffable i mean this is a very religious image in close encounters the the little childy looking aliens whether they're the children or the adults we don't know but the little child looking aliens actually put their hands under uh, Roy's arms and lift him up and when he goes up onto the ship he goes in Christ pose mm. it's a pretty unmistakable okay, symbol that I missed <laughs> oh, yeah, go back and look well. at it okay. it's, so maybe, it's maybe really it, egregious yeah, okay but yeah, I mean, they are they are both, they feel like religious stories. And whether you see that ending as a metaphor for death or a metaphor for like being assumed into heaven, Elijah style, and like given over to eternal life, like one way or the other, it's an image of, I keep using the word ineffable, but I feel like that's what both of these movies are reaching for, is that, that Godhead, that symbol of something presumably wise and beneficial and knowing a lot more than we know, reaching out and like plucking a human being and taking them to, to greater things. Yeah, I, mean, I think in terms of Midnight Special, I, I felt even more of a spiritual element there because of what this outside force is like in close encounters it is very clearly aliens like you can you can read that movie as about aliens and just about aliens what's happening in midnight special isn't aliens it's something else it's a to quote the film it's a world built on top of ours Mm -hmm. populated by beings who have been watching us for a very long time like it's very easy to interpret that as you know a version of heaven and Alton is a fallen angel, you know, if you want to come at it from a Christianity perspective. But again, going back to everything Jeff Nichols has said about this film, like he has been very clear that he wanted this movie to f- 
maybe feel spiritual without being a strict representation of any organized belief system. Mm -hmm. He says, I think it's much more interesting to build a film that someone with a belief in an organized religion, an agnostic, an atheist, a spiritualist, they can all come in and have an experience with the film and project what they need to onto it and then deal with the consequences of what they see after the film. So Midnight Special to me is like just spiritual in a very vague sense of the term like this this can be whatever you need it to be but i don't think there's really any way to interpret it that is does not have a spiritual component can can you give me an interpretation of this where it's like there is not a a spiritual aspect happening here no i really can't and part of i think part of the reason scott that you didn't think about the cult is because they don't feel attached to that spiritual Mm -hmm. element they're obsessed with the the numbers that alton recites they recite those numbers like scripture but there's no sense that they have an attachment to what those numbers mean in a very little sense they have no idea what those numbers mean but in a larger sense they're just parroting you know there's not really a sense that they're they understand and any larger element and it feels like that's why they get dropped so early is that the story being told is about a spiritual aspect of the world and they're just kind of a remora hanging off the side of it kind of uselessly well it's, it goes back to the divide between spirituality and organized religion mm-hmm. where organized religion is a, the thing of man and it is a business to some extent you know um And I think that is very apparent in how the cult is presented, especially as you note them not knowing what it is they're parenting. Like that, that to me, and I was raised Catholic, so that to me like represents like pre-Vatican to Catholicism where masses were in Latin and practitioners did not really know what, what was being said, you know, and that blind faith aspect of organized religion, I think is where the cult factors in and is maybe i guess kind of justifies their presence in the end is if you're positing you know a spiritual connection as being superior to a religion but again going back to what nichols intended that's probably just me projecting my own belief system onto it yeah and i guess he welcomes that if he wants Mm -hmm. everyone including atheists which i find mysterious i feel like atheists and whatever rationalists or whoever you want to think they would feel some distance from the film because the film yeah. as i say is fundamentally as with take shelter sort of pro faith uh, right. as, as as something that well, is worth is worth having and, and and can be justified yeah well and going back to adam driver's character or joel edgerton's character which are are both presented as rational men who are who have their minds changed both mm-hmm. of both of them. I mean, Joel Edgerton's uh, character, who's named Lucas. Uh, Lucas is had is clearly turned before we meet him. But Adam Driver's character, you know, is brought in as a man of science, as a, a man brought in to understand logically and empirically what is happening here, and he can't. And he ends up facilitating whatever spiritual, supernatural thing happens here. You know, I we we touched on just very briefly the fact that Lucas was a favorite character. I would say he is my favorite character in the story. And that's even though he's like sixth or seventh build in terms of 
importance in the story. To me, it's because he doesn't fit that neat narrative. You know, you've got Alton as your Christ figure. Um, He's an apostle. <laughs> well, yeah, he, he, that is true. He is an apostle. But, you know, you've got your Christ figure. Uh, you've got Adam Driver as the sort of Pontius Pilate deciding, like, which whether to serve the government or serve belief, making a different choice from, from Pilate. You've got, you know, doubtful dad and devoted mom and the the Judas who, like, takes him in and then betrays him. Like, you've got all of these very religious figures. And then Lucas is just kind of standing on the side as – I mean, I guess he's kind of your Peter figure. You know, he's he is somebody who is ready to raise arms in order to defend the Messiah. But he comes across as just so far outside all of these like convenient little here's the mom, here's the dad, here's the government scientist cliches. And his emotional conflicts, I think, are the clearest, even though they're the smallest and the least important to the story. He at least gets a chance to express them clearly. And I think that makes them more powerful. He's also the only one with a job. <laughs> there is that. As far as atheists go, Scott, mm-hmm. I think I think an atheist can see this film as a is a vindication of rationality and reality over religion. I think if you want to, you can see it as a straight science fiction story where there are other dimensional creatures or mm. aliens and not where there are angels or a God figure. I think that you can in fact read it as they have faith, but it turns out to be justified because what they're, what they're believing in is really there. And if you want to take any sort of religion out of it, like you can take it in a very literal way, I think. You can. I, I, I think that I, opens I, up a lot more of those bad mysteries you're talking hmm. about, though. Because, like, if that's the case, how was Alton born to these two human... It, it, that is a big mystery. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas if you're viewing it as a, you know, a religious or a spiritual parable, like, you know, it's a lot easier to justify why he's on earth. Even, yeah, see, what, what I hear you saying is, if it's a religious story, then we're expected to have faith in <laughs> yeah. whatever we don't understand, and that makes it more acceptable. I guess that's why uh, Nichols one intended it so, as a spiritual <laughs> story. So uh, I think our, our atheist listeners, if you want to go out and report back to us, you can. Uh, oh, I am so interested in hearing from different listeners yeah, from different religious perspectives on how they read yeah. this movie. This is definitely. And Close Encounters for that. We, we glossed over that a little bit. Yeah, but, you for know. sure. Uh, well, Close Encounters of the Third Kind is widely available on DVD and Blu-ray in at least three different cuts, uh, as well as on-demand services, also in various cuts. Midnight Special is currently in theaters, but probably not for long, alas. And we'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put something interesting on your radar. Genevieve. Want to kick us off? Sure. Uh, I actually have a recommendation that is directly related to what we were just talking about because I came across it in my research. Uh, I want to recommend a short film called The Third and the Seventh. It's a 12-minute short film from 2009 that Jeff Nichols says served as the visual inspiration for Midnight Special's big finale. The film is by Spanish visual effects artist Alex Roman, whom Nichols apparently tried to get to do Midnight Special's effects, but he was too busy, he says. And it's sort of a landmark example of photorealistic computer-generated imagery. Apparently, it's studied in a lot of animation courses. 
it's a completely CG animated visual film, I guess you call it a meditation. It's narrative free, boarding on surreal a lot of the time, and it basically displaces existing architectural structures into remote natural locales. So if you've seen Midnight Special, you can see uh, where what Nichols was drawing from there. Uh, it's a really, really lovely visual treat in terms of composition and structure, and it's pretty jaw-dropping when you actually look at it and realize that every frame of it is computer-generated. It looks incredibly real, but there's also an almost painterly feel to it. If you've ever sort of brushed off the artistry that's possible with CGI, or you were just intrigued by the ending of Midnight Special and want to see more stuff like it, I'd suggest spending 12 minutes watching this on a nice big screen. It's available all over the web. Vimeo has a nice copy that you can watch for free. And yeah, the third and the seventh. Hmm. Tasha, are you familiar with it? I am not. I've okay. never even heard of it. Yeah. That sounds really cool. Uh, but now I've heard of you, it. You you would not know it's an animated short looking at it. You know, and I think so. I, I think recommending these these low time investments. F- yeah. F- free time. It's almost as if I haven't had a lot of time to watch full length movies <laughs> I lately. Know, I know. But Tasha, you have in your capacity as film critic for The Verge. I have, and therefore I am going to recommend a free uh, experience that doesn't take long. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I have been spending a lot of time lately on a website called theeditingroom.com. It's the-editing-room.com. And uh, gosh, I tweeted a a script from this, uh, gosh, around maybe January or so. Um, I was looking for something very specific about The Man from UNCLE, which I had rewatched. And I came across their parody script of Man from UNCLE and read through it and guffawed all the way. And then I promptly forgot about the site and something led me back to it. And this time I dug deeper into it. They do parody scripts of existing movies. They have a fairly geeky bent. So there's a lot of Star Wars movies um, right now, Batman, Superman, not Batman versus Superman yet, but uh, they do a lot of Pixar movies, Fantastic Four, Jurassic World, Maze Runner, um, anything that that seems to have sort of a like a fan related bent. They seem to address and what they do is write these very silly parodies of them that actually have come with a lot of insight about the problems with the movies it's fair it's kind of juvenile humor um it's pretty heavy on the snark but what makes it stand out for me over things like cinema sins or how it should have ended uh, a lot of these other things that also take movies to task for their flaws is it seems to come from a place of both affection and really close observation of character and narrative beats. I find myself like laughing through these. A lot of them apparently have also appeared at Cracked.com. I think that the team of uh, people, like rotating people writing these, have gotten picked up by Cracked. And so from time to time, they'll have a movie script and they'll say this also appeared at Cracked.com. So it's that kind of humor, that like Mad Magazine, Cracked Magazine, kind of poking at the 15-year-old boy who wants to make fun of everything kind of thing. But I have yet to read a single script on this site that didn't make me laugh. And I have yet to read a single script on the site that didn't make me go, Oh, wait, wait, that is a problem with that script, isn't it? Um, they're a lot of fun. I like don't look for deep, deep film analysis, um, but they're really enjoyable. And it is one of those kind of addictive sites where you might find yourself just popping script after script like potato chips. So the-editing-room.com? Yep, the-editing-room.com. I recommend their script for Man From U.N.C.L.E. if you've seen that movie. I re- <laughs> Sadly, <laughs> their, their take on Inside Out is pretty damn funny. And they recently did 10 Cloverfield Lane. Okay. Hmm. 
right. Scott, have you seen a full length movie that you'd like to talk about? This is going to. This is gonna, you're gonna have to invest Clearly, Tasha and I should this. not be allowed to watch movies. <laughs> People like us should. I, be yeah, you took to watch it really movies. to heart. Come on, guys. <laughs> um, so um, I want to. I want to. I want to recommend everybody watch some. Uh, we didn't. We will not have a chance to review Richard Linklater's spiritual sequel to Days Confused, but it is a total delight. Uh, and though it doesn't ha- share any characters with Days Confused, it's easy to see Jason London's Randall Pink Floyd in the character of Jake, uh, a, a pitcher who is about to start his freshman year in college. Uh, Randall and Jake are surrogates for Linklater, who himself was a uh, young baseball player, um, and uh, they have in common the ability uh, the, the characters have in common this ability to move freely from one social scene to the next. I mean, if you remember how Randall Pink Floyd was able to kind of hang out with the burnouts, but also the jocks. I mean, this is this is so so much like this character, uh, uh, Jake, and uh, everybody wants some. He, he, you know, the, the film really does play up the sort of frat house atmosphere of a bunch of hard partying jocks, but it also gets into you know the intellectual arena of college and the the arts and and the, the social scene and it has you know it doesn't have you know the melancholy of days confused but i think it's because the message here is that college is a lot more fun than high school <laughs> you know i mean the, the you know this character who we knew is just suffering in high school by from all of the the, the, the rules and strictures is now in this place where where he's where there's there's a lot of freedom uh, of movement and and um you know some mind expands expanding ideas and in drugs and um and uh you know the other thing that gets me too i mean for one it has this you know that the, the the vibe the nice days confused vibe and the attention to period detail but but these types of movies and adventureland is another movie i like also these they've become these anthropological fantasies for me now because we get to inhabit a time when people weren't attached to their phones or monitored in any way and where the communication was just in general much more experiential you know and there's something kind of freeing and fun uh, about being in that world freedom of boredom yeah maybe so maybe maybe so but uh yeah, I mean, if if we talked about doing that film for for this podcast and the timing just didn't really work out, but you know, I think it's pretty clear that we would have paired it with Dazed and Confused. Mm-hmm. If you're interested on our takes on Dazed and Confused, it was one of the Dissolves' very first mm-hmm. uh, movies of the week, and that is still available on the Dissolve.com. If you'd like to go back, uh, check that out if you are so inclined. Yeah, you should. Uh, it's out. It's still out there. I love it. Uh, so thanks for those recommendations. I, I'm a, I am. Well, I guess Natasha, if they really explore your site, that would take a lot of time. But uh, Genevieve, if, you, if people do not have a lot of time and money, yours sounds like a, a really good way to minutes. go. It uh, also, in po- in theory, is possible to just eat one potato chip and move on. I'm just. <laughs> it I'm, is. I'm not good at it. It is. Thanks. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out April 26th and 28th. Tasha, tell us about our next pairing. All right. Uh, Those of us who saw Jeremy Sonier's Blue Ruin back in 2014 were all deeply impressed by the film's pathos, intensity, and humor, and especially its uncompromising view of violence. So we were all looking forward to Sonier's follow-up, the new release Green Room. And man, did it live up to our expectations. Anton Yelchin and Aaliyah Shawkat star as members of a hand-to-mouth punk band who accidentally see something they wish they hadn't seen after a gig at a backwoods bar frequented by murderous skinheads. They try to escape, but the bar's owner, played by Star Trek The Next Generation's Patrick Stewart, 
uh, let's just say he would prefer that they did not leave. And that's the setup for this riveting, horrifying siege movie with the band trying to survive against discouraging odds. Green Room isn't quite a horror movie and it isn't quite an action movie, but it has elements of both, including a fast-moving story and, again, a graphic but strategically minimal use of extreme violence. Above all, it's a survival movie with a significant part of the story taking place in a single location that the protagonists simultaneously see as a refuge and a possible tomb. In that regard, Green Room is similar to a film Saunier has cited as one of his influences, John Carpenter's 1976 movie Assault on Precinct 13, which has a war between cops and gang members in Los Angeles, culminating in a full-on attack on an isolated police station where criminals and the cops who arrested them have to work together to hold off their would-be murderers until reinforcements can arrive. It's two films about ordinary people cornered and forced to fight for their lives on the next episode of The Next Picture Show. Ugh, I'm so excited about that. I can't. I want to get into it right now because uh, those those f- films I absolutely love. Uh, in the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Close Encounters, Midnight Special, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve Kosky. You can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky, and I'm currently writing about a couple of TV shows for Vulture, The Americans, and Catastrophe. Tasha, what about you? You can see me writing about film at TheVerge.com, where I'm the resident film critic. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. And if you missed a chance to ask us all questions on the Reddit AMA that we did yesterday, as of the day this drops, you can check in there and see what we said. What about you, Scott Tobias? Oh, hi. Uh, uh, You can find me on Twitter at at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, You can also find my work at NPR, Variety, New York Times, Washington Post, Rolling Stone, Vulture, uh, Village Voice, and Oscilloscope's Musings. Um, Is that all I've got? That's all i got, right? (laughs) That's all. Gosh, Scott, you're such a a disappointment. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show via Twitter at Next Picture Pod, via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, or by visiting nextpictureshow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keeps the show going. Thanks again to Genevieve for producing the show, with assistance from Colin the Animal Griffith. And thanks to Tasha Robinson's house (laughs) for providing the recording space. Um, And finally, we'd like to thank our parent podcast, Film Spotting, for all their help, input, and support. Please tune in next time. Let the midnight